Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we come to this moment, and we need you. We've proclaimed it in song. I pray that we would proclaim it in truth from our hearts, that we need you. We need you to tell us the truth, and I thank you that you love us enough to do that. I thank you that you have done that in the scriptures and you've preserved it by the power of your Holy Spirit and this morning we have the the privilege and the challenge to stare into a moment where divine judgment is poured out on the spirit of Babylon. And so I pray that we would have courage as as we read this text. I pray that we would read it honestly and that it would challenge us and call us into a space, God, where where we don't believe the lies that Babylon is selling to us, but that we would be found as faithful exiles, calm in the midst of the, the spiral of death. So would you work that into us even as we, as we listen for your voice together, the voice that speaks authoritatively in these words. We bless you, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If something goes wrong during this service, somebody falls out or somebody turns up sick, we're going to be okay. we got a lot of doctors in the house. I don't know if you know this. I think I just looked at about a dozen while I made that statement that I could count. It's a lot of, lot of doctors, and I'm really encouraged and inspired by all that it takes to become a doctor. I've encouraged getting to know uh, the medical field from pastoring a church right here in the shadow of, of the med center. And, and uh, I'm amazed by all the work and the effort, the hours, the residency, the not seeing family, the di- all that it takes. I'm inspired by all of you. I'm particularly inspired by the folks that, that labor in emergency medicine. Can you imagine, like, middle of the night, and your job is just to be prepared for whatever craziness comes through that door. Your blood pressure has to go down, and you have to pretend like you have it all under control, even while everything feels like it's coming apart. I'm amazed by this. I actually, I once led a mission trip with an emergency room doctor, and we had a middle schooler break his arm on the work site, and this guy with a, a ripped apart Walmart plastic bag and a piece of cardboard, like, wrapped him up and fixed him. He's like, good as new. I was like, really? Uh... But, you know, the, the ER doctor just was calm when everybody else was like, the kid's arm is very clearly broken, you know? There's something about the calm in the face of things coming undone that it shows that something has happened leading up to this moment. There's been a lot of preparation. Something has become true of you that when everyone else is losing their minds, you all of a sudden are like, everything's going into slow motion. You've got this focus and this clarity and In many ways, as we continue on this journey, paying attention to exilic living, we're going to see this sort of dynamic in the life of Daniel this morning. That we are going to see the spirit of Babylon embodied. We've been talking about the spirit of Babylon. It runs throughout the whole of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And it is the spirit of the world that displays itself in self-exaltation, the pride and devotion to oneself that is typically marked by, in the scriptures, a love of of wealth and greed, as well as lust and sexual sin, that bound up in that is the spirit of Babylon, sex and money and self-exaltation. And we're going to see it on proud display, embodied in our text today, and then we're going to see the swift judgment of God poured out on it. In essence, what what we are laying our eyes on is the last day of the Babylonian Empire. 
the last day of Belshazzar, the now king's life. And as we see this unfold, we realize that we are spiraling the drain for Babylon and everybody is coming undone, anxious, nervous, the color of their face changing, all of these terms that we're going to see. But there's one man that shuffles in and he is entirely different. He is calm because he sees Babylon and its end for what it is. And so today, I want to talk about this reality that we are called to be faithful exiles living far from home. And the invitation is that we would be the sorts of men and women that are calm even in the face of the death spiral of Babylon. And in order to make sense of that, we're going to do two things together. The first thing is I want to explore what is the death spiral of Babylon. The spirit of Babylon, when it gets exposed and starts coming undone, we're going to try to define that from the text so we can identify it in our own time and place. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is what is the faithful exile's response? What does it look like for us to remain calm in the face of, of this spirit of the age coming undone? Let's see if we can make sense of it together. First, the marks of the Babylonian death spiral. It sounds like a, like a heavy metal band or something. Um, the Babylonian death spiral. Let's see if we can make sense of it together. The first four verses, though I make a joke, not something to be laughed at, that this is serious matter as we see this come to conclusion. In the first four verses, we are going to note this, that the first mark of this, this reality is that it produces increasingly frantic indulgence. Pay attention to how frantic the indulgence is in these first four verses. It says, now, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Just pause for a second. If you've been reading straight through Daniel, you have no idea who this guy is. He was not introduced. He's just on the scene. And so let's just do a little bit of history to make sense of this. Nebuchadnezzar's story wrapped up last week. After he encountered God and all of his power, all of his pride was finally humbled. King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon that reigned for 43 years, has now died and exited stage left. In the interim, there's actually been several kings that have turned through. After this death of Nebuchadnezzar, there were several kings, one that uh, ruled for a year, then four years, then four months. There was intrigue and murder and all sorts of unrest at the highest levels of Babylonian leadership. And behind that came a guy named Nabonidus, and Nabonidus led with a co-regent. They were both recognized as kings. Nabonidus left the city of Babylon and allowed Belshazzar to rule in his place. Belshazzar is not literally Nebuchadnezzar's son, but he is his predecessor and very likely in his family line. This is who we're dealing with. Now, he's been reigning for about 15 years. Uh, we fast-forwarded all told 20-plus years since our last time we were together. So... He's been reigning for well over a decade, but all we get is the telling of his final 12 hours of his life. Because in the divine telling of the story, it's not just about chronology and historical events. It's about the implications for what God is doing, and ultimately, Belshazzar's story, as one who embodies Babylon, is, it only makes an impact in his death. So, verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now pay attention to these words that are repeated. It says they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. This party is not your typical party. 
this would be out of the ordinary for a, a sovereign, a ruler in that time for a number of reasons, and they're the sort of things that get numbered and repeated for us. One, it says he called together the thousand. He gets everyone together, and it says that he sat up front so that they could watch him drink. Now, this would be unusual for a king to be going to the point, it looks like in this text, of drunkenness and beyond and wanting everyone to see it. He wants them to see him reveling in his indulgence. And it gets repeated twice that his wives and his concubines were there. This is very unusual that wives and concubines would be invited to a party with the lords. In a sense, what he's saying is, I want you to see me with all of my women, all of my wealth, and you, all the lords of the land, I want you to behold it. Do you hear the spirit of Babylon on display? Wealth, sexuality, and self-promotion. It is the full embodiment of the spirit of Babylon. It is being declared that, look, this is a king that has bought in hook, line, and sinker to the promises that Babylon is making to the world. You see, he is in, and it's, it's almost like he's growing more frantic in the indulgence. Look, aren't we all having a great time? Everybody drink freely. Isn't this wonderful? Look at all my women. Look at all of this fun. He has forgotten the, the rule that I learned in Econ 101 my freshman year in college. You know, freshmen always get the tough pull on the courses. I took an 8 a.m. Uh, econ class. Not great, not great when you're 17 and you're a freshman in college, but I do remember this. In my second class, the professor was trying to explain the law of diminishing returns, and he brought a pile of M&Ms. He said, one M&M, it's good. 10 M&Ms, it's great. 10,000 M&Ms will make you really sick. This is the law of diminishing returns. And uh, as I consider that, what I, what I realized this week is that they, the spirit of Babylon does not and has not ever learned the law of diminishing returns. That a little bit may be fun and, well, more would be better. And then there's this, it's almost like the dial breaks. And it starts to say, well, more and more. Let's just stay here. Let's maximize pleasure and start arranging our lives and the way that we think about the ways that our lives run to make sure that we stay in this place as much as possible and maximize it as much as possible, not realizing that what was fun on the, end, on the, on the onset is destructive in the end. At a moment sitting at a, at a baseball tournament for my oldest son the other day, and there were a couple of dads sitting next to me that are nearing 50 years old. They've got middle school kids, and, and they were swapping... Um, they, they were swapping kind of their best tools for combating a hangover. Like, well, I drink Pedialyte before bed so that I can get up and be ready for work and be able to help the kids. And, and I just, I was sitting, and it was like this deep sadness. The conversations that, you know, that fraternity guys when they're 18 think are funny and cool. But all of a sudden, when the dial breaks and 30 years later, you're still thinking this is what life is about, and you're going... Do you, do you feel the law of diminishing returns yet? This isn't working. Sitting with a friend recently that was saying in the 10 years since he graduated from college, he and his fraternity brothers have buried three of his pledge brothers. And he said, because it turns out what we thought was fun is actually deadly. You see, the, the first reality of the spirit of Babylon is that the dial has broken and it's frantic indulgence. Like, Let's just all keep, it's all fun. It's all good. Let's just do this again. Let's do it again tomorrow night and the night after. Let's just keep this going because isn't this what life is about, everyone? Just keep laughing. And the reason that the spirit of Babylon can engage in that sort of activity in an ongoing way 
is, is the second thing. The, the second mark is that it, the conscience has been seared. Did you see it in verses 1 through 4? The same verses that we just read, but did you, did you notice when he called for the, the golden vessels? And it, it gets repeated. He calls for the golden vessels that, that have come from Jerusalem, and then it doubles down, and it says the golden vessels that have come from the house of God in Jerusalem. The author is helping you see that it's, it's being emphasized and expanded. Now, some of the people in the thousand would have still had their right minds about them, and they would have been going, oh no. Because twice in their lifetime, there have been decrees made that there is something different about this God, that the great king that ruled for 43 years, that is still legendary, in whose shadow they all still live, he is the one who declared at the end of his life, none can stay the hand of this God. And so, though everyone is praying, there had to be some of the lords that were sitting there going, what did, what did he just say? What are they doing? But here, this man who has embodied the spirit of Babylon has come to this place where he thinks, this is just a punchline. This is just going to make the party more fun. This is going to help us laugh and jab, take jabs at this God of Israel. You see, it reminds me of the statement of the prophet Jeremiah, who's speaking to the people of God just leading up to this episode. He says on a couple of occasions in the book that he penned with his name, he says, oh, people of Israel, how you have forgotten how to blush. You don't know how to be embarrassed anymore. One of the ways that we know the spirit of Babylon is taking root in our story is that things have become a punchline that ought to be the source of our grief and our lament. That we can with one voice praise God and cherish the things of God and with another we laugh and we retell the jokes that ultimately are just peddling in the spirit of Babylon. That we all of a sudden think that well, yeah, I don't want to take it too seriously or, or really be before God with open hands and open heart and, and the fullness of my life. And in this space, we see that this man has such a seared conscience that he actually doesn't know the difference. He doesn't know how to blush. He doesn't know how to be embarrassed. He doesn't know that he's crossing all sorts of lines. Quite frankly, brothers and sisters, some of us have continued to hold on to the indulgence, thinking that's what will really deliver our joy. And one of the reasons we know that the dial has become broken is because we experience less and less conviction when we're crossing the line. Some of us, it's, it, that's been the story of sexual sin in your life. What started with something that I'm just playing with or that's just a punchline all of a sudden feels like an addiction and it feels like it's telling your story. And the saddest and the most dangerous thing is you're not even convicted anymore. See, the spirit of Babylon begins to take hold. And the ways that we know it is that it's increasingly frantic in its indulgence and it sears the conscience. And the third thing is this. It dulls the intellect. I'm going to give you a bold theological truth. You can write this one down. This is like a deep, profound theological truth. Sin makes you stupid. It does. Sin makes you dumb. It makes you think you're going to Get away with it. Isn't this fun? Temptation and temptation indulged in all of a sudden starts causing you to take further and further steps and convincing yourself no one's ever going to know. This isn't ever going to come home to roost. Sin makes you dumb. And the way that we see it in this text is by the conclusion, you heard it read over us, but verse 30 says this, that very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Now what is happening here? He's got a thousand people. He brought them into the room and he says, I want you to watch me drink as, I, as I'm hanging with my ladies. Just, just look at it. 
thinking, isn't this wonderful? And that's the day that his very life is going to be called to account. Now, one of the things that we know about Babylon is that it was a very impressive city. We're not sure how impressive because different historians tell it differently, and we're not sure where exaggeration takes place. But what we know is this. The walls were very impressive. They were somewhere, depending on which historian you're reading, somewhere between 40 and 350 feet tall, which is a pretty big discrepancy. But the walls were impressive, okay? Enormous walls. They were somewhere between 25 and 87 feet wide. And they ran for 56 miles in a continuous circle around Babylon. And they let the river run right through the center of the city. And so these walls that were impenetrable had a river that ran through the heart of the city. And as a result, there were lush gardens. They could have their cattle and their animals be watered and fed. They could raise their own crops. And they could live comfortably and safely within Babylon for years while under siege. No one could touch them. And in fact, in this very moment, they were under siege. And what this king is declaring by bringing all the lords in and say, watch me as I drink to my heart's content, what he's saying is they can't touch me. It's never going to come home to roost. I'm safe. Proverbs 18, 21 says that the rich man's wealth is the wall of his city. That when all of a sudden we get everything planned and we think, oh, I've bought in if my wealth and my security I can do as I please. I've created my space. It's like Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells the parable of the rich young fool who tears down his barns and builds bigger ones. And just as he finishes building them, he sits back and says, eat, drink, and be merry for all of my needs have been met. And the word that Jesus says is this, you fool, this very night you shall die. You see, the spirit of Babylon it dulls the intellect because we start to think that if I get what, what Babylon offers, I'm untouchable, impervious. I've got my wealth and sexual fulfillment and it's all about me. Isn't this perfect? What he doesn't know in this case is that in this very moment, Belshazzar's enemies have figured out how to dam the waters of the river and re redistribute the water. And then where the river comes under the wall, they all snuck in in the dry riverbed and they sacked the whole city. Xenothon who I'm sure you were reading this morning, uh, extra-biblical historian, actually confirms this story. He says that Babylon was sacked on the night of a great feast. That in fact, the enemies came in while they were toasting to themselves, saying, no one can touch us. Sin makes you stupid. The last note, the marks of the spirit of Babylon increasingly frantic in your indulgence, seared in your conscience, dull in your intellect, and terrified of the judgment of God. Look back at verses 5 through 9. It says this, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. That's weird. We'll just admit that together. That's weird. That would be unsettling. A human hand shows up and it's right across from the lampstand to make sure that the king doesn't miss it. Right where it's illuminated against the wall and it starts writing. This will sober you up real quick. The king saw the hand as it wrote and the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. Literally in the original what it says is it's untying the knots of his joints. It's like he's undone. 
his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation will be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and will be the third ruler in the kingdom. All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Do you hear all these words that capture how undone he is? My question is this. How does he know it's bad news? They have no idea what's written on the wall. You know, they're partying, they're toasting themselves. Look at all of the blessings that we've got. We've got this strong city and everything is as it should be. And here he is toasting and, and showing his own glory. But when something divine enters the room, he, it immediately registers his terror. He doesn't know what it says, but he knows it's not good news. Why? Because listen, underneath the surface of the spirit of Babylon that says, just keep laughing. Isn't everyone having a great time? Isn't this great? Underneath it is a sinking feeling that recognizes. That recognizing that the conscience cannot be cleaned off and rubbed away. The realities of the human soul in a moment that's saying, isn't this all great? And isn't that in that moment, no matter how seared the conscience, underneath it all, what we recognize is this. If God shows up, that is bad news. The judgment of God strikes fear into, heart, into the heart of one that is marked by the spirit of Babylon. It's terrifying. He doesn't know what it says, but he knows, he's not sure. he knows that he doesn't want to know. He knows that he, he's asking somebody to read it, but already he's terrified of what it could mean. Some commentators even say that that idea of the joints being undone is, is actually a... Um, basically like a euphemism. It, it means that he soiled himself. Whatever it is, we don't, I don't know if that's the case. I don't know. What I do know is the guy is not in a good state of mind in this moment. <laughs> Listen, where do we find ourselves in the spirit of Babylon? Wealth, sex, self-indulgence, and self-exaltation. This is where it leads. We're getting a picture of the end game to the death spiral, it's circling the drain in this moment. And into this space walks a faithful exile that shows us a different picture. And I want us to examine the way that Daniel enters the scene together because what we're going to see is, is a beautiful picture of calm in the midst of everything coming apart. A picture of a very different approach which in, in essence is the inverse of the spirit of Babylon. And I want you to hear this with me. The first note is this, rather than increasingly frantic indulgence, what we're going to see is this, is a man with a stellar reputation. Look at verse 10 and following. It says, the queen comes in. Now, this is literally, this is the queen mother. Now, remember, Belshazzar has all of his ladies with him. So it's not his wife that's coming in. It's either his mother or his grandmother. It's the, it's the matriarch of the family. This is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's widowed wife or Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, one that has seen God work, and she was not at the party. She wasn't in indulging, but she walks in when everyone's coming undone, and this is what she says. She said, because of the words of the kings and the Lord, she came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, he made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Beautifully, when the queen mother walks in, what she says is this, there's a man and he's got an excellent spirit. This is not a challenge for him. This term excellent spirit, it connotes someone who, who is not dis- directed by the circumstances in life. It's, it's this idea of the excellent spirit actually is drawn by something outside of the world. It gives their life energy and focus and power The idea is that faithful exiles will be the sort of people that show up at work and show up in their community with an excellent spirit, not being marked by the moment and the time or the spirit of Babylon, but drawn by something more. They show up with a totally different approach. And this man has been doing that for 70 years in such a way that they go, ah, here's someone with an excellent spirit. And I just, I've been engaging my imagination this week. I I would invite you to do the same with me. Daniel is 80 years old. And they go get him, and he just comes shuffling in, you know. He's seen a little bit of everything. If you're around when we, we preach the book of Ecclesiastes, he kind of reminds me of the author of Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet. I think he probably wears orthopedic shoes. He comes in, and he's just going to stand here and look at all these. He's an oak of righteousness that has stood the test of time. He's about to stand before king number five. He's watched four come before him, and they're all dead. They're all humiliated, humbled by their folly, and he's looking at the pinnacle of this guy's folly, and he's unimpressed. And what I've been praying over you, actually in the, in the study this week, I was envisioning this moment, this text open, looking out at the faces of Seven Mile Road, and I was begging God, would you raise up hundreds of oaks of righteousness that refuse to be marked by the spirit of the age, that are marked by a spirit beyond this world, that have an excellent spirit and have this incredible reputation, I hope that you all someday, at 80 years old, shuffle around saying, I've seen a few things, I know a few things, because I've seen God deliver time and again. He has developed a stellar reputation. He's not frantic in his indulgence. He has developed something rather different. The second thing is that he doesn't have a seared conscience, but he's actually remained unpolluted. Look at his response. So the king brings him in. He says, if you can tell me what's written on the wall, I'm going to give you gold and prominence. I'm going to set you up. And I love his response in verse 17. It says this, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. This guy's got to be wearing orthopedic shoes. Like a statement like that, he's just so over it. He's so unimpressed. He's going, really? Babylonian gold? You think that's what what has developed me and driven me? You think? Keep it for yourself. It's a thousand people all gathered together thinking, this is what it's all about. This is it, isn't it? He comes shuffling and he's like... I'll read it for you, but I don't, 
I don't want anything that you have to give me. He has remained unpolluted to the end. I have a nervousness for us that the tentacles of prosperity gospel and its influence in Western Christianity, I I think it kind of touches us in lots of different places that we don't even realize our theology and the way that we hold it. That we think, yes, I want to honor God, but not because honoring God is the great great delight of my soul. It's kind of like, I want to honor God, and and if I get all the gifts of Babylon with it, then that's doubly good. If God can become a means to my end of blessing, which blessing is predominantly about this world and what it can deliver, now that's the good life. And Daniel stands in the midst of it all and goes, he has remained unpolluted because what he recognizes is that if I get God, I've got everything. I've got everything that will never be touched, that this world can't take from me. And your gold, by the way, is going to belong to someone else in a few hours. (laughs) He's remained unpolluted. And the reason is because he's developed a clarity of vision. I won't read the verses to you, but in 18 through 23, he speaks back to the king. And the reason that he is unpolluted is because sin hasn't made him dumb, but time with God has given him vision. He remembers history. He says, I know Nebuchadnezzar, the great king. He was made like an animal. He was a beast that was running around in the fields. I know what happens to the power of Babylon. And incidentally, in a couple of chapters, we're going to get to read his his prayer journal. In chapter 7 and following, we get to see the dreams and the visions and the things that Daniel was receiving alone in his prayer closet. As best we can tell, he retired somewhere in his 60s, and he's been in retirement for about the last 20 years. He got called out of retirement for this moment. And in that time, he's not had prominence. People have kind of forgotten his name, but he's just been praying. And he's already gotten two visions during Belshazzar's reign that we'll study in a couple of weeks. And what he got to see is God on the throne, the Son of Man coming and receiving authority from God. He got to interact with Gabriel, and what Gabriel told him is this kingdom and the kingdoms coming after it are all going to be destroyed. He has been in the presence of God, and he sees everything clearly for what it is. And because he has vision, sin is not making him stupid. He doesn't come in and go, oh, wow, sex and wealth and drink and indulgence. I'm so jealous. This looks like so much fun. He comes in and goes, seriously? You don't even begin to see what's most real in the world. He has developed a clarity, a vision that allows him to see through the lies that Babylon is selling. And listen to me, every one of the promises that Babylon is making to you, the spirit of the age that tells you you'll be satisfied if you find your sexual pleasure in this way, that you'll be satisfied if you just can build a life with enough wealth to be untouchable, all lies. It will not satisfy your soul. And because he has vision, he knows it. The last mark of the faithful exile that is calm in the midst of the death spiral is that he's not afraid of the judgment of God. He anxiously awaits the judgment of God. He speaks a word over the, over the king. He reads the words on the wall, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene means numbered. And it's spoken twice because what he's saying is your days are doubly numbered for emphasis. Now, keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar last week got a word from God and he had 12 months before it came to fruition. Belshazzar gets a word and he's got 12 hours. 
Do not presume on the mercy of God. We never know when our moment is coming. He looks at him and he says, Mene, mene, your days are numbered. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. Ouch. Parson, your kingdom is going to be divided and ripped from you. This is a declaration of judgment that causes the king to come undone, but Daniel boldly is declaring it. Beautifully, did you notice that Daniel got his name back? He was renamed when he showed up in Babylon to Belteshazzar, but last week when he interrupted, when he interrupted or pardon me, when he interacted with Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar went back to his original name and started calling him Daniel. Now the queen mother calls him in and says, he used to be Belteshazzar, but his real name's Daniel. Get him in here. Do you know what Daniel means? Do you remember this? God is my judge. Daniel stands in this space and goes, it's my very identity. It's been my hope that has pulled me all the way through. God sees all of the brokenness and all of the oppression and all of the sin, and he's going to call it all to account. This is the hope of a faithful exile, not his fear. And the way that you can have your soul delivered from the spirit of Babylon that wants to invite you into its death spiral, into the calm of being a faithful exile, is to understand the power of what Daniel has experienced around the judgment of God. The word over all of humanity, over every man and woman that has ever been born in human flesh, save one, is mene, mene, tekel, parson. Your days are numbered. You will die. Tekel, we have been found wanting. Parson, our kingdom, no matter how impressive in this world, will be ripped from us. But there is one who stood in the place of judgment. And though the gavel has gone down on humanity because we have been found wanting, he received the thorns and the nails and the spear and the cross and the tomb. And three days later, in resurrected glory, King Jesus came out to this reality. His days are no longer numbered. He has been weighed and found sufficient. Parson, his kingdom will never be taken from him. In fact, it will swell and grow into eternity, and it knows no end. And if you are in Jesus, that word is scrawled in blood on the walls of your heart. A better word spoken over you is that you are free. Your days are not numbered. You know hope beyond this life. You have been weighed and found sufficient because of his completed work and his kingdom is now yours. When we realize that we have nothing to fear, when we stand in the midst of the spiral and the spirit of the age call into account, we can with joy and with calm say, I know who's on the throne. God is my judge. And so, brothers and sisters, my longing for us is that we would be faithful exiles, calm in the midst of the spirit of Babylon, developing a stellar reputation, remaining unpolluted in the world with a clarity of vision, knowing that one day we will lay eyes on the king, and because of his work, we will be free. Let me pray for us. So, Father, right now, I pray that by your spirit, you would convict us. Where is the spirit of Babylon have its tentacles on our hearts and our lives? Where have we trusted money and sex and power to deliver what only you can give? Would you show us? 
If I have any friends in the room right now that are entrenched in the spirit of Babylon and don't know what it is to receive the good news of Jesus, oh God, I pray that they would not wait. We don't know if they have 12 years or 12 minutes. None of us knows what's coming. I pray that we would not presume on the mercy that you have shown us, but we would run to you. That we would repent and believe on Jesus, experiencing freedom that will empower us to a different sort of calm in the midst of this world. So Jesus, we love you. You're the hero of humanity. You're our hope. So we offer these prayers by your name, and we thank you in advance for the ways that you're going to answer them. Amen.